Welcome to this podcast by The Rocks Church. We hope you find it challenging and inspiring. For more information, visit therocks.church. Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see you all. Hope you're having a wonderful weekend and uh, welcome to church. Great to have you here for this very special weekend. And today, in honor of our animal-themed movie, we have some very special but unusual guests. This is Caleb, everybody. Say good morning, Caleb. Now, oh my gosh, all right, mate, you got to tell us, what kind of snakes are these? These are Stimson pythons. Oh my gosh, you look very relaxed there, and they're not going to bite you? No, they won't. All right, do they have names? No, they don't. <laughs> all right, how old are they? Uh, the one in my hand here is about eight years old, and the one on top of my head is about 14 or 15. Oh my gosh, they're absolutely beautiful, and they feel stunning, oh my gosh. That's epic. Now, of course, the Bible does say that we have authority over all living creatures, including all the things that scurry along the ground. So right now, I'm just taking authority in Jesus' name over these snakes so that they're not going to bite me or Caleb. They're absolutely gorgeous, aren't they? Beautiful. That's awesome. Thanks for bringing them along, mate. Now, Caleb is going to release these pythons in the foyer. And uh, straight after our gathering, we're going to have a python hunt. How cool is that? And so the person who finds one of Caleb's pythons gets to win an all-expenses-paid trip to Universal Studios. How amazing is that? All right. So straight after the gathering, get out there and just be careful where you step. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Well, as we uh, said, we are in the second installment of our annual series at the movies. And those of you who have been around the rocks for a while will know what the series is all about. And for those of you who are new to the family, uh, let me take a moment to explain. Every year we take some time to talk about issues of life and faith and ideas about God that find their way into some of the blockbuster films that make it to the big screen. And the reason we do that is because we love to connect our faith and conversations about our faith with the culture in which we find ourselves. Now, it kind of goes without saying that not every movie is a message from God. And not every message in a movie is consistent with biblical truth. So you've, you've got to watch movies discerningly. But nevertheless, there are lots of really good and important ideas in our blockbuster films that connect quite deeply with biblical truth. And so today we are going to be exploring the movie called Noah. Now, just out of curiosity, by show of hands, quick survey, how many of you have actually seen the film? Like, give me an enthusiastic wave if you've seen the movie. Released in 2014, so it's been around a while and a fair number of you have seen it. And of those of you who have seen the film, how many of you were deeply disappointed, unpleasantly surprised, or downright offended by the movie? All right, give me a wave. That's right, enthusiastic wave if you hated it. This is church. You've got to be honest, people. All right, there's no right or wrong answer. If you hated it, give me a wave. Good. All right. And uh, of those of you who saw the film, how many of you enjoyed it and loved it and thought, well, I thought it was really a good film, right? That's interesting. Husband loved it, wife didn't. That would have been an interesting post-movie conversation. All right, and, and of those of you who did not see the film, how many of you chose intentionally not to see the movie because you read the reviews, you heard the criticisms, and you said, I'm just not up for that. I'm not exposing myself to that. All right, all right, very good, Mom, I assume. Okay, so, and, and the amazing thing is you were all part of the same church, right? And uh, of course, when the movie was announced, there was a lot of excitement in the Christian world, particularly about the prospect of a big budget, like high-end production portrayal of a biblical story. But all that excitement very quickly turned to disappointment once the film actually released and Christians began to see it. And much of the criticism against the film was that it did not accurately portray what was in the Bible. 
And so if you followed any of the online commentary or any of the reviews, you would have heard people say things like this. Uh, this is a statement from a guy called Rob Alberto who posted this on his Facebook page. He said, Noah is a lousy movie, period. It should have been titled Mutiny on the Ark or A Crow Flew Over the Cuckoo's Ark. It's a lousy movie because it despicably portrays the biblical account. In fact, the movie Noah is so different from the biblical account that it is a different story altogether. Or perhaps this one from Stephen Rost who said, I viewed the film this past weekend and can only say it is a disgraceful corruption of the Noah story. The film is theologically unsound, biblically vacuous, and historically inaccurate. <laughs> All right, well, Stephen, tell us what you really think, mate. All right, and of course, for every one of those types of comments, there was a corresponding comment from a Christian who absolutely loved the film. So there's no doubt about it. It generated a lot of conversation and a lot of controversy, largely around the way the story is portrayed in the movie as uh, contrasted with the way it appears in the Bible. Now, just for the record... Personally, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was presented very cleverly and it was, for the most part, really well done. And I don't mind the controversy because I think controversy very often leads to some interesting conversation. But love it or hate it, what the movie does do is it highlights the fact that we all have very different ideas. Not about the film, but about the Bible. We all have very different ideas about how the Bible should be read and understood and interpreted and applied, and of course, how the Bible should be used in artistic representation. How much creative license is acceptable when you take the Bible and you turn it into art? And all of that is a fascinating conversation, and that's perhaps a conversation for another day, because the other reason why the Noah film was so controversial is because the Noah story itself as it appears in the pages of Scripture, is itself controversial and has been for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And the reason for that is because the Noah story forms part of a literary genre in the Bible we call ancient cosmology. It's part of Israel's origin story. And as such, there are big question marks and lots of debates over whether or not the Noah story is actually true. And by that I mean, is what we have in the pages of Scripture a detailed, literal, chronological, blow-by-blow -blow account of an actual historical event. Is it history in the making? And of course, the reason for the question about that is, for instance, we know from science that there is no evidence at all for a global flood at any point in the last 10,000 years. Um, the biblical period of history we have in the pages of Scripture is somewhere between six to 10,000 years, and there just simply is no evidence for a global flood as described in the pages of the Bible over the last 10,000 years. Now, there is some evidence for a regional kind of localized flood of the ancient Near Eastern Mediterranean Basin, somewhere between five and 7,000 years ago. And it's highly likely that that is what the story is referring to. And that that localized regional flood is the inspiration behind not only the Noah flood story, but the many flood stories that exist in the culture of the surrounding nations that were in and around Israel at the same time period. So some of you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, all right, well, fair enough, Tim, I... I I've heard that before and I'm comfortable with that, so that's great. Others of you will be sitting there thinking to yourself, well, to be honest with you, that's the first time I've ever heard that, but I'm slightly relieved 
because I consider myself to be a thoughtful, intelligent, rational, educated human being. And if I'm absolutely honest with you, I have always struggled to believe that the story of Noah is literal and that the earth was flooded and that every living creature on the planet was saved by being packed into the ark in pairs. Well, if that's you, you can just sit back and just breathe a sigh of relief because you do not have to accept that the story of Noah is a literal, chronological, blow-by-blow account of an actual historical event. Of course, for others of you, you might be sitting there thinking, what the heck? Like, are you telling me that not everything in the Bible is literally and historically true? Yes, right? Uh, That's not to say there's no history in the Bible. Of course, there is lots of history in the Bible. So much of the Bible is historical narrative. But the Bible is actually a library of books, 66 books in total. And there are many literary genres inside the Bible. Some of it is history, but some of it is not. And so understanding the literary genre that you are dealing with in various places in the Bible is important to understanding the message of it. Now, of course, that is not to say that the story of Noah is not deeply meaningful, deeply spiritual, and potentially transformational. It absolutely is. The inclusion of the Noah story in the pages of Scripture is there by divine design. It's there by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's there because God wants it there in the form that it appears. God, by His Holy Spirit, moved on the authors of the Old Testament, and He inspired them to pen those words accurately, faithfully, and truthfully, and to record the Noah story exactly the way we have it in the pages of Scripture for a very important reason, for a purpose. And we'll see that in a minute. So today, for the sake of our conversation, Our focus is not the historicity of the Bible uh, or of the Noah story. Our focus is not the multitude of flood stories that exist in the ancient Near Eastern cultures that surrounded Israel at the same time. Our focus is not even the literary genres of the Old Testament. If you are keen to learn more about that and about ancient cosmology, I highly recommend the work of a biblical scholar and Old Testament theologian by the name of John Walton, who's written extensively about this and who produced two brilliant books, one called The Lost World of Genesis 1 and the other called The Lost World of the Flood. Both outstanding works, and if you're keen to dive a bit deeper into understanding ancient cosmology, that's where you want to go. The focus of our conversation today is the spiritual truth that God is communicating through the story. What is it that God wanted Israel to know And what is it that God wants us to know as a result of that story and its inclusion in the Bible? And so with that as a backdrop and as the context, let's dive in. And there are several things I want to share with you this morning that I believe God would have us know and understand on the basis of the Noah story. Number one, the first is this, that the Noah story is both a revelation and a warning to us today. Right? The story of Noah is both a revelation and a warning to us today. So the story of Noah may not have been written to us, but it was written for us. It was written to Israel, but it was written for our learning, for our understanding, for our growth. And Jesus himself affirms this idea when he takes the Noah story and he uses the Noah story to teach his disciples something incredibly important about his post-resurrection return. So listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 24, reading from verse 37 to 39. Jesus speaking says, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time that Noah entered the boat. 
People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. And so Jesus here is saying, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days before my return. And perhaps what is most important for us to see here, first and foremost, is that here Jesus is affirming the validity and the authority and the necessity of the Noah story. Its historicity is almost beside the point. Jesus wants us to know this is an important story. And it's important for multiple reasons, not least of which is the fact that Jesus says it will be in the days prior to my return as it was in the days of Noah. So essentially what Jesus is saying is between his resurrection and his return, in this kind of day and age in which you and I find ourselves, between his resurrection and his return, it will be as it was in the days of Noah. And of course, we know from the Noah story that in those days, people were given over to self-serving hedonism, to self-indulgent pleasure. People were, to use the language of Paul, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. God had been forgotten. God had been pushed into the background. And as a result, wickedness and evil and injustice permeated the world. It was everywhere. And friends, the truth of the matter is you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus. You don't even have to consider yourself to be particularly religious to know that that is true of our world today. All you need to do is turn on the news. Just pick up a newspaper or turn on your radio and just pay attention to the world around you and you will see corruption and oppression and injustice and unfairness and sickness and disease and suffering and adversity and hostility everywhere. And in fact, you have probably found yourself a victim of that injustice and that unfairness and that suffering. You have probably found yourself confronting the reality of the brokenness and the fallenness in our world. And you have no doubt found yourself on the receiving end of that reality. And so you don't have to be a person of faith to know there's something wrong with the world. It isn't the way it ought to be, right? Bad things happen to good people. Guilty people go free. Innocent people suffer. And it just seems to be a randomness to it all. And of course, it begs the question, well, why is this so? Why is the world the way it is? Why is evil and wickedness allowed to perpetuate the way it is? And part of the purpose of the opening chapters of Genesis, including the Noah story, is to answer that question. Why is the world the way it is? And in the movie, there's a very powerful scene quite early on in the film where Noah sits down with his family and gathers his children around and he tells them the creation story, essentially what we would find in the opening chapters of our Genesis account. And he tells them how it all began and more importantly, where it all went wrong. It's a very powerful scene and I want you to see it. So have a look at the screens. Let's enjoy this together and then I'm going to come back and say some more. Let me tell you a story. The first story my father told me and the first story that I told each of you. In the beginning, there was nothing. Nothing but the silence of an infinite darkness. But the breath of the Creator fluttered against the face of the void, whispering, let there be light. And light was. And it was good, the first day. And then the formless light began to take on substance and shape, the second day. And our world was born, a beautiful, fragile home, and a great warming light nurtured its days. And a lesser light ruled the nights, 
And there was evening, and morning, another day. And the waters of the world gathered together, and in their midst emerged dry land. Another day passed, and the ground put forth the growing things, a thick blanket of green stretching across all creation. And the waters, too, teemed with life, great creatures of the deep that are no more. Vast multitudes of fish, some of which may still swim beneath these seas. And soon, the sky was streaming with birds. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Now the whole world was full of living beings. Everything that creeps, everything that crawls, and every beast that walks upon the ground. And it was good. It was all good. There was light, and air, and water, and soil, all clean and unspoiled. Your plants and fish and fowl and beast, each after their own kind, all part of the greater whole, all in their place, and all was in balance. It was paradise, the jewel in the Creator's palm. And the Creator made man, and by his side woman, father and mother of us all. He gave them a choice. Follow the temptation of darkness, or hold on to the blessing of light. But they ate from the forbidden fruit. Their innocence was extinguished. And so for the ten generations since Adam's sin has walked within us. Brother against brother. Nation against nation. Man against creation. We murdered each other. We broke the world. We did this. Man did this. Everything that was beautiful. Everything that was good. We shattered. Now. It begins again. We did this. Right. Man did this. We broke the world. And this is essentially what the Genesis story, of which the Noah story is a part, wants us to understand. God made the world, and He made it good, and He made it beautiful. But humanity rebelled against God. We went our own way. Right? We said to God, we don't need your wisdom. We don't need your laws. We're going to create our own wisdom. We're going to create our own laws. We're going to choose our will over your will. And human beings chose a life of independence from God. And friends, that is why wickedness and evil permeate and perpetuate in our world. It's because human beings are trying to do life independently from God. And when you do life independently from God, you cut yourself off from the source of all love and all life and all joy and all peace and all goodness. And of course, when you do that, the obvious consequence is going to be death and suffering and pain and heartbreak and hostility and conflict, right? So why is the world broken? Why is the world permeated with wickedness and evil? Friends, in short, it's because humanity rebelled against God and we chose the path of independence and autonomy from God. But of course, the Noah story is a story of hope. And it's a story of hope because against the backdrop of all that evil and wickedness in the world, we see God. We see the God of Israel step into the scene. And the God of Israel is different from the pagan nation gods surrounding Israel at the time in that he's not indifferent. He's not removed. He's not unconcerned. He is intimately aware of what's going on in his world. And he is moved 
by compassion. He is heartbroken about it. And so God does something about it. And this is a second thing that I believe that God wants us to know and understand from the Noah story is that He is able and willing to save us from the evil in this world. God is able and willing to save us from the evil in this world. God is going to deal decisively with evil, but He's also going to make a way of salvation. God is going to deal decisively with sin and rebellion, but He is also going to make a way of redemption. God is going to make a plan. And of course, nowhere is that redemptive plan more fully expressed or realized than in the person of Jesus who comes to us as God incarnate, God wrapped in human flesh, God clothed in humanity, and He comes not only to us, but He becomes like us and He comes alongside us and He rolls up His sleeves and He gets down into the trenches of life and He lives with us and He talks with us and He loves us and He serves us and He suffers with us and He ultimately gives His life for us. Friends, if you've ever wondered, does God care? Like, does He care about the suffering in the world? Does He care about the wickedness and the evil? You only need to look at Jesus because Jesus is the personification of God's care. Right, Multiple times in the Gospels, it says Jesus looked out over the multitudes and He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Does God care? Absolutely. And He cares enough to do something about it. And interestingly, Peter, who was one of the very first followers of Jesus, one of his closest friends and one of the first leaders of the early church, Peter takes the story of Noah And he connects it to the redemptive work of God in and through the person of Jesus in the world. So listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, reading from verse 18 to 22. And this is a bit of a mouthful, so follow along and then I'll I'll say something to try and simplify it. Uh, Peter says, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring us safely home to God. He suffered physical death. But he was raised to life by the Spirit. So he went and preached to the spirits in prison, literally in Sheol, the place of the departed spirits. To those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Now only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. But that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you. Not by removing dirt from your body or from your life, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. And here's Peter's main point. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God. And all the angels and authorities and powers accept His authority. In other words, what Peter is saying, listen, the reason why you and I can have the hope of salvation and redemption from this evil and wickedness in this world is because Jesus is alive and Jesus is Lord. Because Jesus was raised from the dead and because Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God the Father and given all authority in heaven and on earth, you can be saved and I can be saved. So what Peter is trying to tell us here is that God is going to deal decisively with wickedness and unrighteousness in this world. But before He does, He is making a way. He's making a way of salvation. He's making a way of redemption. God has built an ark, and He is calling everybody to get on board. And that ark is Jesus. He is our refuge. He is our shelter from the storm. He is our escape from the impending judgment that God is about to pour out on the wickedness and unrighteousness in this world. And everybody can be saved. Whosoever will come can get on board and find salvation. 
in Jesus. And so God is outworking this plan of redemption. Yes, friends, know for certain that God is going to deal decisively once and for all with the wickedness and the injustice and the suffering in our world. But before he does, because he is patient and long-suffering and gracious and merciful, he is making a way of salvation and he is calling all who will come to put their faith and trust in Jesus so that they too can receive that salvation and escape the judgment that's about to fall on the wickedness in this world. And, and this leads me to the third thing that I believe the Noah story is trying to communicate is that ultimately God will favor those whose hearts are loyal to Him. God will favor those, bless those, protect those, and provide for those who choose to bring their lives back under His authority, to reverse the rebellion of Genesis chapter 3, and to come back into relationship with God. See, I love the fact that the Bible says concerning Noah that he was a righteous man. Now, Noah was not a perfect man by any means. He was a man like me and a man like you. He was a human being, just like you and just like me. He was not perfect, but the Bible says he was righteous. And you know why he was righteous? Listen to what Genesis 6 verse 9 says. It says, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time. That's how wicked and evil it was. And he walked in close fellowship with God. You see, friends, what made Noah righteous was not his track record. It was not his own holiness. It's not his own righteousness. What made Noah righteous was his relationship with God because he walked in fellowship with God. And you and I cannot be righteous in and of ourselves. What puts you into right standing with God is not how good a Christian you are or how holy you think you are or how perfect your track record is. What makes you righteous and in right standing with God is your relationship with Him, your faith in Him and your dependency on Him. And that's why in Hebrews 11, verse 7 in the New Testament, it says concerning Noah, that by faith Noah obeyed God and condemned the rest of the world and received the righteousness that comes by faith. See, you and I can only be saved and only be in the ark and only be in right relationship with God through faith putting your, your trust, your confidence in Him and bringing your life under His Lordship and leadership, right? And it says in Genesis 6 verse 8 that Noah found favor with the Lord. Noah found favor with the Lord. And here's the point, friends. When you have faith in God, it opens the door to fellowship with God, which results in favor from God. Now, let me say that again. When, when you have faith in God... It opens the door to fellowship with God, which then results in favor from God. And the truth of the matter is you can find yourself in the most desperately dark and wicked environment. You can be surrounded by every kind of temptation and distraction. You can find yourself confronted with every kind of hostility and opposition. But if you have faith in God and fellowship with God, the favor of God will find you. It will find you in the darkness. You can be in the most wicked, evil setting, but if you have faith in God and fellowship with God, the protection of God, the providence of God, and the favor of God will follow you. Like David said in the Psalms, your goodness and your mercy follow me all the days of my life. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll feel no evil because your rod and your staff will comfort me. And I don't know what kind of world you live in. I'm not sure where you live and where you work and what kind of wickedness and evil you are confronted with every day. I'm not sure what 
temptations or distractions confront you every single day. I know that out there in the world, you're going to encounter all forms of darkness and oppression. But I do know this. I do know this on the authority of God's Word, that if you have faith in God and you have fellowship with God, you will have favor from God. God will bless you. God will protect you. God will provide for you. God will lead you. God will guide you. God will make a way for you. And you should expect it. You should expect it. Now, don't be prescriptive to God. Don't tell Him what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and through whom to do it. Let God do what He does best. Let Him exercise His wisdom and discernment. But expect it. Expect God's provision. Expect His protection. Expect His favor, even in the midst of the darkness. Because when you live in fellowship with God and you have faith in God, you are a child of the light. So expect it. And then finally, fourthly and lastly, I reckon that the Noah story is here to remind all of us that at the end of the day, trusting God requires courage and obedience. Trusting God requires courage and obedience. You see, the bottom line is following God and putting your faith and trust in Jesus is not an easy path. It's not for the faint-hearted. When you choose to love God and to serve God, you will be misunderstood. People are going to exclude you. People may marginalize you. They may ridicule you. When you, like Noah, choose a life of obedience to God and you choose God's way over your way and you choose His wisdom over your wisdom and you choose His will over your will, people are going to take offense. You know, Jesus Himself said, hey, if the world persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Paul the Apostle said, if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. So it's kind of inevitable that as we journey through this life as followers of Jesus and lovers of God, that we are going to experience the wickedness and the evil and the, and the opposition and the persecution that is so prevalent in our world, right? But we can and should expect the favor of God. Now, here's the thing. The reason why God calls you and me to courageous obedience is because on the other side of that obedience is somebody's salvation, on the other side of that obedience is somebody's redemption. See, friends, I am fully convinced to the core of my being that every single one of us sitting here, like Noah, have an assignment from God. Your assignment may not be as dramatic as building an ark and navigating a flood. But there are things that God wants you to do. There are places He wants you to go. There are things He wants you to say. There are conversations He wants you to have. There are things He wants you to build, you to start, you to initiate that are all inextricably linked to His plan of redemption and salvation for this world. And for whatever reason, God in His wisdom has chosen to outwork this great plan of salvation and redemption by being in partnership with you and in partnership with me. He works through frail, fallen, broken human beings like Noah, like David, like Moses, like Paul, like you, and like me. And so God calls us to a faithful, courageous obedience because on the other side of that obedience is somebody else's redemption, somebody else's salvation, somebody else's inclusion. So yes, there's a price to pay for the call. Yes, there's a price to pay for saying yes to God. There's a price to pay for choosing to live life in fellowship with God and with your faith in God. But friends, the reward far outweighs that price. And ultimately, ultimately at the end of the day, we want to see as many people as possible find their way into the ark, 
find their way into relationship with Jesus. Find their way back into right and restored relationship with God so that when the judgment of God finally falls on the wickedness and the evil and the injustice and the unrighteousness in their world, those people have safety and security in Him. Amen. So friends, in conclusion, the story of Noah is an epic story and there is so much in there for us to explore and to learn from. But essentially, it's a story about God. God who created a good and beautiful and wonderful world, but a world that became corrupted by humanity's rebellion against Him. God, however, because He is merciful and compassionate and gracious, is not indifferent and removed. He's willing to act, and He has done something. He has done something profound in and through the person of Jesus. He has initiated a rescue mission, a plan of redemption and salvation, and He's calling all of us to get on board by putting our faith and trust in Him, by pursuing a life of fellowship with Him, by living in His favor, and above all, being courageously obedient to whatever it is that He's asking us to do in this world and at this time in service of His redemption mission here on the earth. Amen? Amen. All right, bow your heads, close your eyes. We're going to take a moment to pray this morning. And uh, as we do, I want to invite you to just open up your heart to God right now. And to that gentle whisper from the Holy Spirit who is with you and in you and maybe talking to your heart right now. And I want to encourage you to just courageously ask God, God, what is it that you are calling me to do? God, what do you want me to say? What conversations do you want me to have? What courageous, risk-filled steps are you calling me to take in order to serve your kingdom here on earth? While we have the time, while it is still day, where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to reach out to? And I know that when we ask questions like that, God speaks. He speaks clearly. He'll give you instruction. He'll give you direction. And I want you just to be open to that. Because I know God wants to work in you and through you. Some of you might be sitting here today and you have never really put your faith and trust in Jesus. If you were honest with yourself, you'd be sitting there saying, Tim, I think I'm outside the ark. I think if the judgment of God fell today on the wickedness and the unrighteousness in this world, that I might be caught up in that judgment because I have not submitted my life to Jesus. I have not put my faith and trust in Him. I've not chosen God's wisdom and God's will over my wisdom and my will. But today I recognize the need and everything inside me wants to do that. And so as we pray together, this could be your moment where you simply bow your life before God and you say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my independence. I'm sorry for my rebellion. I'm sorry for my sinfulness. I want to bring my life under your lordship and leadership. I want to receive your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. I want to enter the ark and know that I am safe in Jesus. And that can be your experience today. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more great resources and to keep yourself up to date, head to our website. Visit therocks.church.